We're back. Let's let's take a look at some people who um, who left us in 2013. Starting with Hiroshi Yamauchi. Noted the Financial Times, Yamauchi came from a prosperous but troubled family. When he was a boy, his father eloped with his mistress and brought shame upon them all. As a result, Yamauchi was only 22 when his grandfather handed him control of card game manufacturer Nintendo, which is Japanese for Leave Luck to Heaven. The young college dropout would go on to run the company for 52 years. He transformed it from a flailing toy company into a video game giant. But what I liked the most about him was the taciturn executive never played the electronic games that made his company world famous. Yamauchi often said, I have better things to do. (laughs) The New Yorker.com noted that Nintendo reaped huge sales from a succession of silly gizmos, including an an extendable claw known as the Ultra Hand and a love tester that measured a couple's level of ardor. But in the mid-60s, someone suggested to him that he might want to create a portable electronic game player. The product that came out of that game and watch eventually sold 43 million units and soon developed into such video games as Donkey Kong and Super Mario Brothers, which became global smash hits. Curious history with this guy. It was noted that he had a pragmatic, unemotional streak, which evidenced in 1992 when he purchased a majority stake in the Seattle Mariners baseball team, which he admitted was solely a gesture to American consumers. In fact... Yamauchi never watched the Mariners play a single game. He said in 1992, let me put it this way. Baseball, well, baseball's never really interested me. We'd also like to note the passing of Ruth Patrick. She was, by the 1970s, one of the nation's foremost authorities on freshwater ecology and was a pioneer in the environmental movement. She apparently arrived in the mid-30s at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. She had a newly minted Ph.D. in botany. The institution recognized her talents enough to hire her, but just wouldn't pay her. Probably because she was a woman. She was finally put on the payroll in 1945. She founded its Department of Limnology, or Freshwater Ecology. In 1948, she led a trailblazing study of a Pennsylvania stream and discovered that pollution could be gauged by the presence of single-cell organisms called diatoms. Biologist Thomas Lovejoy said, She basically demonstrated that biological diversity can be used to measure environmental impact. I call that the Patrick Principle and consider it to be the basis for all environmental science and management. Patrick's work led to the groundbreaking 1972 Clean Water Act, which she helped write. She apparently advised Presidents Johnson and Reagan on environmental issues and was awarded the National Medal of Science in 1996. Former Dean of the Yale School of Forestry, James Gustav Speth, said about Patrick, she was addressing water pollution before the rest of us even thought of focusing on it. Here's someone whose name I did not know, but whose work I was familiar with. Martin Sharp passed away last year. He was a graphic artist who set a psychedelic tone for the 1960s. Sharp said it started with a beer. According to the New York Times, in 1967, the Australian artist started talking in a London bar with a young Eric Clapton. He scribbled on a poem he'd written. Within weeks, Clapton used it for Cream's 
Tales of Brave Ulysses, and he asked Sharp to design the cover of the band's new album, Disraeli Gears. The resulting masterpiece, a swirl of day-glow colors, feathers, and flowers, helped shape the imagery of rock music for a generation. Apparently, he co-founded, down in Sydney, an anti-establishment magazine called Oz. It's noted that without his stunningly original artwork, Oz might never have achieved the fame it enjoyed in its early years. It also got him into hot water. He got sued and acquitted for obscenity and then moved his team to London. There, the young artist embraced the high life, said the Daily Telegraph. Inspired by drugs, he produced the Magic Theater issue with the London Oz in 1968, described as a writhing 48-page collage fusion of images and text. Apparently, when the police took an interest in Sharp's extracurricular pursuits, he decided to return to Sydney. For the rest of his life, Sharp pursued his belief that there should be no dividing line between art and life. Well, we applaud that viewpoint, but would note that it does involve a certain amount of peril if you treat your life to be a bit of performance art. He evidently uh, spent a lot of money and almost went bankrupt making a film about the singer and ukulele player Tiny Tim. And boy, there's got to be an untold story there. Speaking of people that are at a confluence between art and life, uh, Tom Laughlin died last year. He was the creator and star of the Billy Jack movies. Noted the AP, actor-writer-director Tom Laughlin, whose production and marketing of Billy Jack set a standard for breaking the rules on and off the screen, has died. Billy Jack was released back in 1971 after a long struggle by Laughlin to gain control of the low-budget, self-financed movie, which was a model for guerrilla filmmaking. He wrote, directed, and produced Billy Jack and starred as the ex-Green Beret who defends a progressive school against racist of a conservative Western community. The film became something of a counterculture favorite. Although we do note that one of its successors, The Trial of Billy Jack, did earn a place on the Medved Brothers volume, The 50 Worst Films of All Time. We at Radio Parallax would note that it probably deserved a place on that list. I think the premise of Billy Jack movies was that bullying and violence were wrong. And if you engage in that, Billy Jack is going to kick the crap out of you. 2013 saw the, uh, the end of the road for a couple of uh, media evangelists. We first want to note the passing of Harold Camping. Note of the LA Times, Harold Camping didn't live to see the end of the world. The Oakland-based radio preacher drew international attention, much of it in the form of ridicule, when he predicted more than once the precise date of the rapture and then had to concede his error. Harold Camping had a long history of of, of convincing himself he'd unlocked hidden clues in the Bible. He first predicted the end of the world in in 1978, according to an aide. The most famous of his prophecies was his next to last when he claimed that May 21st, 2011, was Judgment Day for sure, and sent acolytes on a cross-country tour to warn people. When May 22nd dawned, Camping was apparently holed up in his Alameda home, having provided fodder for comedians and TV talk show hosts, but but disappointing his small band of followers, some of whom had quit jobs and ended relationships in anticipation of their direct ascent into heaven. 
As reported on this program, the next day, Camping conceded he hadn't worked out the date as accurately as I could have. But he then confidently predicted the apocalypse would actually begin on October 21st, 2011. Evidently, Harold Camping grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, where he was an elder and a Bible teacher. In 1958, he joined with two partners to form the nonprofit Christian radio network, Family Stations, Inc. He'd gotten a degree in civil engineering, by the way, from UC Berkeley in 1942 and started out with a construction company. He moved into evangelizing full-time sometime in the 60s, apparently. After he um, issued his first Judgment Day prophecy back in 1978, uh, he apparently strained his relations with the Reformed Church. And then when he came up with a new prediction in 1988, uh, apparently they'd had it with him. The church told him he could no longer teach Sunday school. So he quit the Reformed Church and later proclaimed that the church age had ended because Satan had taken over all the churches. I have to admit, I grew up hearing that voice of, that goofy voice of Harold Camping and Bay Area radio stations. He exuded a certain confidence about the things he talked about. I guess he's sort of a personification of that old saying, that while he might have frequently been wrong, he was never in doubt. Anyway, while the apocalypse did not uh, come for all of us uh, in recent years, it, it, did, it did finally come for Harold Camping, as it did for Paul Crouch, a man who said he began building the world's largest Christian broadcasting network after a glowing apparition of North America appeared on his ceiling in the mid-70s, as the word, apparently, satellite was uttered by a heavenly voice. Crouch later said, I knew I'd heard the voice of God, and I absolutely obeyed it. Paul Crouch first started a campus radio station at a Bible college and continued DJing after he became minister in Rapid City, South Dakota. He launched the Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, in 1973 with the $20,000 purchase of a UHF station in Tustin, California. Crouch and his wife, Janice, presented the network's first show with nothing but a folding chair and a shower curtain from Sears as a backdrop. Their telethon raised $30,000 on a single night. Crouch later wrote, I'd put into motion one of God's most powerful laws, the law of giving and receiving, sowing and reaping. Well, one thing's for sure, Paul Crouch was really good at receiving. Although he did specialize in prosperity gospel, according to the Orange County Register, the idea that God will give money to those who give money. He built a pretty big empire. TBM became, is the largest Christian broadcasting network in the world with 84 satellite channels, 18,000 television and cable affiliates, theme parks, and more. But noted some obituaries, Crouch wasn't just spending money on the gospel. He and his wife acquired a multi-million dollar fortune by, well, according to some, preying on the gullible, as donors gave $90 million each year. Crouch would dismiss charges of impropriety as secular media bias, at least up till 2012, when his granddaughter, Brittany Coper, sued TBN, claiming tax-exempt donations had been spent on extravagant dinners, luxury properties, and a $49 million private jet. TBN has denied the allegations. All right, we probably need to note the passing of Al Goldstein. God, he used to always see Goldstein on television back in the 60s. Inevitably described as the editor of Screw magazine. 
Noted the Miami Herald, Al Goldstein didn't invent sex, but he spread it across the pages of his magazine, Screw, with nearly every possible position and permutation. Goldstein drew the line on only two things, child pornography and sexual violence. Noted the obit Screw, which followed the considerably tamer Playboy by 15 years, eschewed the girl-next-door Playmate of the Month. Rather, it showed real people, naked, or having unromantic sex without any pretense of art. You have to like Goldstein's first editorial. It boasted, we will be the consumer reports of sex. The Miami Herald referred to one of their reporters, Ellie Brecher, who chronicled uh, Al Goldstein's South Florida exploits for years. Beecher told the paper, which she had recently retired from, that uh, Goldstein... Just thinking about him. Her memories still made her burst with laughter and sometimes a little grudging admiration. A little. But he did a lot for free speech, and I think he deserves to be remembered as much for that as for filthifying American culture to the best of his ability. Rather famously, Goldstein uh, published frontal nude photographs of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who was caught surreptitiously via a long lens at her Hyannisport property. Sadly, that helped Screw Magazine sell half a million copies back in 1973, which was the same year that the U.S. Supreme Court redefined obscenity as materials that lacked serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. For Goldstein's part, he scoffed at the wording, suggesting that the reader's erection was its own redeeming value. The obits that noted that along the way, uh, Al Goldstein discarded five wives and alienated his only child... This is hard to imagine. By featuring digitally doctored photographs of his son in explicit sexual acts. The reason? Jordan Goldstein, now a lawyer in New York, hadn't invited his father to his graduation from Harvard Law School back in 2003. Soon it was noted the elder Goldstein would find himself homeless, eventually crashing in a Staten Island, New York apartment paid for by his friend, celebrity magician Penn Gillette. It's a fate he prophesied as far back as 1998. I'm going to be poor someday. I'll do something stupid and lose it all. He did do a few stupid things, but apparently some lawsuits helped uh, push him into the homeless category. As I say, there was a time when he seemed to always be on television, and I have to say, he, he did seem to be a rather loathsome person. On the other hand, not loathsome at all was actress Joan Fontaine. Passed away last month. Boy, we have to get a subscription of the LA Times for as often as we're quoting from it on today's program. But noted the Times in its obituary of Joan Fontaine. She was the coolly beautiful 1940s actress who won an Academy Award for her role in Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion and who became almost as well known for her lifelong feud with her famous older sister, Olivia de Havilland. In addition to winning the award for best... In addition to winning an Academy Award for Best Actress for Suspicion, Fontaine was also nominated as Best Actress for her role in Hitchcock's Rebecca. I believe that was the 1940 Oscar winner. Now, when she won her Oscar, her sister, Olivia de Havilland, was also nominated for Hold Back the Dawn. It was a head-to-head sibling competition that had the Hollywood press buzzing. In her 1978 autobiography, Fontaine wrote, Now what have I done? recalling her reaction at the award ceremony. All the animus we'd felt toward each other as children, the hair pulling, the savage wrestling matches, the time Olivia tried to fracture my collarbone, 
all came rushing back in kaleidoscopic imagery. Evidently, Fontaine's wind cemented those childhood grievances the sisters rarely spoke thereafter. This is quite a sibling rivalry. I guess Fontaine was nominated for Best Actress three times, won once, but her sister was nominated five times and won twice. Noted the Week magazine, um, after her tremendous success in the 40s, uh, the rest of her career just sort of tapered down. She consisted mostly of bit parts in mediocre movies, but it's noted that her off-screen life was a constant adventure. She became a licensed pilot, an accomplished interior decorator, and a cordon blue caliber cook, according to The Hollywood Reporter. All right, we have one final uh, person, and again, an actor, to talk about to close this segment. And I think we can't think of a better person to close with than the legendary Peter O'Toole. According to one obituary, Peter O'Toole was known as much for his hell-raising ways as he was for his acting. He and buddies Richard Burton and Richard Harris drank, skirt-chased, and laughed their way through two decades and multiple cities. Harris once claimed to have gone for a drink in Paris and awakened in Corsica. Remarkably, Peter O'Toole was nominated for a Best Actor Award eight times, yet never won. Started with his explosion on the screen as portraying T.E. Lawrence in David Lean's 1962 epic, Lawrence of Arabia. He lost for playing King Henry II twice, first in Beckett in 64 and in The Lion in Winter in 1968. And apparently the excellent remake of Goodbye, Mr. Chips in 1969, he lost again, this time to John Wayne. That must have hurt. And uh, I understand he gives a pretty good performance in his fifth nomination in the ruling class in 1972. Of course, that year he had to go up against Marlon Brando in The Godfather. He was a larger-than-life figure. According to the New York Times, O'Toole threw himself wholeheartedly into what he called bravura acting courting and sometimes deserving the accusation that he became over-theatrical, mannered, and even hammy. His lanky, loose-joint build, his blue eyes, his long, lantern-jaw face, his oddly languorous sexual charm, and his eccentric loops and whoops of his voice tended to reinforce the impression of power and extravagance. Richard Burton called him the most original actor to come out of Britain since the war, with, quote, something odd, mystical and deeply disturbing, unquote, in his work. O'Toole's carousing became legendary, particularly in the 1970s. As he himself said, he had long been happy to grasp the hand of misfortune, dissipation, riotous living, and violence. He counted Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Robert Shaw, Francis Bacon, Trevor Howard, and Lawrence Harvey, along with Peter Finch, among his drinking buddies. Here's a story I find rather astonishing. O'Toole apparently lost most of his Lawrence earnings in two nights with Omar Sharif at casinos in Beirut and Casablanca. It's noted that although he won many lesser awards during his career, Triumph of the Academy Awards eluded him, perhaps in part because he'd made no secret of his dislike of Hollywood and naturalistic acting, which he considered drab. At age 18, he apparently wrote a notebook to himself, I will not be a common man. I will stir the smooth sands of monotony. I do not crave security. I wish to hazard my soul to opportunity. His father was Irish. His mother was Scottish. O'Toole liked to tell interviewers his background was not working class, but criminal class. (laughs) His father was left with a bad right hand after all of its knuckles were systematically broken, apparently by creditors. 
Peter was an altar boy at a Roman Catholic church and displayed a gift for creative writing, but he left school at 13, became a warehouseman, a messenger, a copy boy, a photographer's assistant, and eventually a reporter for the Yorkshire Evening News. By his own admission, a poor journalist, he was fired by the editor with the words, Try something else. Be an actor. Do anything. Reportedly, he was so moved by actor Michael Redgrave's portrayal of King Lear in 1953 that he hitchhiked to London to attend drama school. His performance on the English stage in The Taming of the Shrew and Shylock in The Merchant of Venice won critical acclaim and the admiration of David Lean, who was casting then for his screen biography of T.E. Lawrence. At 6'2", Peter O'Toole was not an obvious choice for the role of the 5'4 scholar-soldier. Producer Sam Spiegel had found him bumptious in a meeting. When after Marlon Brando turned down the job, Lean lobbied for O'Toole and won the day. It's noted that whatever his later reputation as a roisterer, O'Toole was conscientious when it came to preparing for the role of Lawrence. In the two odd years it took to shoot Lawrence of Arabia, he read all he could about the man, studied Bedouin culture, lived in a Bedouin tent, taught himself the essentials of Arabic, and learned to ride a camel. His acting method, he wrote in his autobiography, was a process that blended magic with sweat, a matter of allowing a text to flow into his mind and body until he fully inhabited the character. Peter O'Toole drank too much, I think that was universally agreed, developed a nasty case of pancreatitis back in the 70s as his career went into a tailspin. But he did have a bit of a comeback in the 80s, starting with The Stuntman, which is a pretty, pretty interesting movie. One role I absolutely love Peter O'Toole in is in the movie My Favorite Year, which you've not, if you've never taken this in, dear listener, please do yourself a favor and rent it. He plays a cross between um, Errol Flynn and I think himself in that picture, which is, which is really quite a delightful comedy. Peter O'Toole once wryly admitted that he continued to accept roles in inferior films like King Ralph because it's what I do for a living, and besides, I've got bookies to keep. In 2003, when he was one nomination away from setting a record among actors for the most Oscar nominations without winning, the Academy decided to give him an honorary one for lifetime achievement. At first, he was reluctant to accept that, fearing it would somehow signal the end of his career. He was hoping to win one on his own still. Said he, upon accepting the statue at the ceremony, Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. My foot! I have my very own Oscar to be with me till death do us part. My personal favorite Peter O'Toole story, which I heard from Richard Harris, and I think was the very last uh, uh, Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Harris... uh, famously caroused with O'Toole over, over a many-year period. He told the story of how, um, on the night that O'Toole won, I think, the Golden Globes Award for his performance as T.E. Lawrence. The London Times chronicled that with the headline, British Actor Wins Award. When, however, some months later, <laughs> Harris and O'Toole got in a bit of a dust-up apparently in some pub, from which he got arrested. The headline in the London Times was then, Irish actor arrested in pub brawl. Anyway, Peter O'Toole, a hell of an actor. We are sorry he is gone. Anyway, let's take a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 